I would have liked to study the entire book of Romans, but considering that in Hebrews it took us from January until June, and that even skipping some portions of it, uh, I think I would need an entire year to get through Romans. So instead, I decided to parachute us into chapter 12, which is a particular favorite uh, chapter of mine. Uh, But maybe just by way of background, as, as we try to close out Romans 12, I would summarize the first 11 chapters of Romans this way. Romans chapters 1 through 11 give us a comprehensive description of the saving work of Jesus Christ. Romans 1 to 11, a comprehensive description of the saving work of Jesus Christ. You could really say that Romans is broken into two parts. So the first, the first 11 chapters, the emphasis is on what Christ has done. Chapters 12 through 16, the emphasis shifts to what we must do. And when I say that, I do not mean to suggest that we cooperate in the act of salvation. No, we're saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. So when I say chapters 1 through 11 is what Christ has done, and chapters 12 to 16 is what we do, it's what we do in response to what Christ has already done. It's our ongoing response to the work of Christ. Now, by review in this series, we began in the first two verses of Romans 12, and what was outlined to us was our obligation to God. Our obligation to God. And it could be summarized this way. Our obligation to God is to worship Him. And our worship, we find, is not to be confined to what we do here on a Sunday morning. That even when we are at recreation or at rest or at work, wherever we are, wherever we find ourselves, we ought to be positioning and posturing our heart to worship the Lord. This is our living sacrifice to Him. As we continued on in Romans 12, it became clear that one of the ways in which we worship God is by contributing to the health of the body of Christ. That is, contributing to the health of the church. And we talked about uh, the scenario, and and many of you have friends as I do, who say, you know, uh, I don't need to go to church. I can be a perfectly good Christian at home, alone. And, And the scriptures clearly say that's not possible. You cannot be a good Christian at home alone because one of the things that makes you a good Christian is your willingness to contribute to the betterment of other people's walk with Christ. Something you can only do as a group or as a gathering. So now as we reach the end of chapter 12, the obligation set before us is extended even further. It begins with an obligation to God, and then it expands to an obligation to one another within the church, but now it expands even further. If you've been tracking with the sermon titles that were posted in the bulletin, I changed the title for today. Uh, the, The title I had listed read this way, Your Obligation to Those Outside the Church. But I don't think that's a good sermon title anymore, and I'll tell you why. I don't think Paul is compartmentalizing between those who are within the church, within the covenant, 
and those who are outside of the church or outside of the covenant. As I read these final exhortations in Romans 12, Paul is setting out a new obligation, and it's an obligation to every single person. It's an obligation to every single person. And that's, that's our sermon title, Your Obligation to Every Person. So not only is Paul widening our obligation, but I also think he's moving from the easy to the difficult. He's moving from what we're inclined to do to what we're reluctant to do. He begins with worship God. And we're, we're yes, let's do that. Let's worship, the, worship God. That's why we're here. And then secondly, uh, we're, we're called to, to give uh, our energies to the benefit of the church. And we may not have the same level of eagerness towards one another as we have towards God, but hopefully we have some willingness to build one another up as the church. But as we come to this final set of exhortations, you can be forgiven, at least by me, if you're not at all eager to fulfill them. For these are hard things that we're being called to do. If you don't believe me, look, open up your scriptures to Romans 12 verse 14 and following. Paul wants the Christ follower to have a particular approach to conflict. In terms of how we get on with difficult people. Does anyone have a, a life that engages difficult people? I mean, is there anyone who, who if you don't have any difficult people in your life, I, I want to know what you're up to and where you go and where you live and where you work. Because I think if you've been on this earth any amount of time, you've encountered difficult people. And subsequently, you've been in conflict with them. So Paul tells us, he prescribes for us how we get on with such people. And I don't think you're going to like what he says. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now I want to help this along. And, and forgive me for doing this. But I think this message will be more meaningful to you. If you can take a moment to bring to your mind those people who challenge you. Bring to mind those people who test your patience. Please bring those people to your mind because we, for this to work, we need to know when and how and to whom we will apply this. What Paul calls us to is very close. It's very close to what Jesus taught in his Sermon on the Mount. We heard it read earlier. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So you see, both Jesus and Paul teach us that retaliation is not the way of the Christian. And what makes the Christian distinct isn't simply the absence of retaliation. It's not that we're just pacifists. But what makes the Christian distinct is the presence of kindness and generosity on occasions where retaliation might be justified. I think your experience will confirm that we're not simply talking about people that we greatly dislike when we talk about persecution. We're not just talking about enemies here. I think you would all be able to say,
say there are people in my life who actually love me, but they persecute me in some way related to my Christian faith. There are people who adore you. There are people who cherish their relationship with you. But they challenge your relationship and your faithfulness to Christ. It might be a member of your own household. It might be one of your children. It might be your parents. It might be a sibling. It might be someone very close to you. It might be your spouse who loves you but is unhappy with the level of devotion you have towards Jesus Christ. Paul has a message for you. Don't fight back. At least not in this area. Don't retaliate. He tells you exactly how to engage that family member, that friend who is not happy about your walk with Christ. The answer is bless them. Pray for them. Pray that they would come to love and to cherish a relationship with Jesus Christ as you do. And demonstrate love towards them. Win them over, not with arguments, not with your cleverness. Win them over with your acts of love and generosity. I realize that this is an unnatural response if someone has wronged you. If someone has offended you, if someone has persecuted you, it's not normal to simply want to turn around and bless that person. I think you'll agree our natural instinct is to stand up for ourselves. Our natural instinct is to fight back. You know this is our natural instinct. If you grew up with brothers and sisters, if you parent multiple children, you know how this goes. You've you've heard a conversation like this, or maybe when you were a child, you've been a part of this. You know, Bobby goes to mom and dad, and Bobby says, Mom, Dad, Stephen, Stephen hit me. Stephen, why'd you hit Bobby? Well, Bobby pushed me to the ground. Oh, Bobby, why'd you push him to the ground? Well, Stephen stole my video game that I was playing, and it goes on and on. You you never have situations or you scarcely have situations with young children where they're returning a push or a punch with a favor in return. Kids act out their instincts. And the instinct is to fight back or to push back. However, fighting back is not the Christian way. The Christian way is to be kind, it's to be generous. To whom? To those who've hurt you. Be kind and generous to those who've offended you. Is that easy? No, it isn't. It takes a great deal of effort. And it also requires supernatural assistance. If you try to apply what I'm saying or what Paul's saying, you try to go home and just try to be generous with difficulty, you need God's help. You need spiritual assistance if you're going to heed the command to bless those who persecute you. Now I want to move along here. We've spent a long time in verse 14. And you're thinking, boy, we've got to go all the way to verse 21. No, don't worry. We'll move quickly through some of these. But if you're looking at verses 15 and 16, 
At first, they seem disconnected from the rest of the passage. But I want to show in a few moments why I think they're clearly connected to everything else Paul says. Look at verse 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. What's Paul doing there? Paul is calling us to empathy. He's calling us to empathy. Not to sympathy, but to empathy. It's not enough to say well done to someone who has succeeded. And it's not enough to say I'm sorry to someone who is hurting. The call here is to genuinely feel what other people are experiencing. Empathize with them. Then we move to verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. The call, the clear call in verse 15, is a call to empathy. And the clear call in verse 16 is to humility. Now again, step back from those two verses. Look at Romans 12, 14 to 21 as a unit, as a whole. And I think you'll agree that verse 15 and 16 seem out of place. It's, it's not in theme or in step with the rest of the verses. But I think Paul knows what he is doing. I think Paul's positioned these exhortations with great purpose. So what is Paul trying to convey? Could it be, might it be, that conflict emerges... Fights break up. Conflict emerges where there is a lack of empathy and a lack of humility. Think through those fights you've had. Think through those arguments. It's probably been the case that one or both of those things are in play. Either you are not feeling and experiencing what the other is feeling and experiencing. Or you're not lowering yourself. You've got an elevated view of your knowledge and your abilities and the actions you took. And you have such a high view of yourself that it rubs against other people. I think Paul inserts this verse 15 about empathy and verse 16 about humility. Because if you don't have empathy and if you don't have humility, you're going to be in a lot of arguments. You're going to fight with a lot of people. So Paul wants you to rejoice when others are rejoicing. He wants you to weep when others are weeping. He wants you to feel what they're feeling. And he does not want you to cherish an elevated view of yourself or your abilities. He wants you to be humble. And if we can be humble and empathetic, we will have less conflict in our life. Now we go to verse 17 and we return to this non-retaliatory posture where Paul says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. Now again, we talk sometimes about what's distinct to Presbyterians, and Presbyterians love Romans 12 verse 17. Because here there is a command to give thought to something. 
See, we're not to act instinctively. We're not to act emotionally. We're to act, we're to give thought, careful thought to how we do things. As Presbyterians, we don't act in a knee-jerk, instinctive manner. But if we can stretch this out, Christians should always be thinking through their actions. Christians should always be thinking through their actions using Scripture to determine what the honorable course of action is. And then we look at verse 18, and if you're looking at it, I hope you, along with me, appreciate the realism of verse 18. If possible, I love that qualification, it's important. So far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I'm guessing that Paul has experienced what many of us have experienced. There are some people in our life that are determined to stand against us. They're determined to be at odds with us. They're determined to be harsh, to be our enemy. I hope not too many of you know this, but I think we, many of us do. You've committed an offense against a person. I know I've done many things that I regret against many people. I think we know what it's like to be on the guilty side and to say, I wish I didn't do that thing. Well, what Paul's saying is so far as it depends upon you, find a way to be at peace with that person you offended. So we offend someone and we genuinely feel badly about our offense. And I hope we, we've done what we ought to do and that is apologize, to name, to confess our offense and to say we're sorry. And, and as far as we can make amends, make restitution for what we have done. But I think some of you will say, I did all that. I felt badly before God and I felt badly before this other person. I confessed my sin to God and I confessed my sin to this person. I reached out to them. I extended an olive branch. I did everything I could to be at peace with them and they still stand against me. That's okay. Paul says, if possible. Paul says, as far as it depends upon you, be at peace with everyone. So Christ followers are to always be pursuing peace. So it ought to at least be the case where you might say, I'm estranged from this person, I'm at odds with this person, but I'm reaching out, I'm reaching out, I'm trying to make amends. Christians must be pursuing peace. Verse 19 and 20. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. But leave it to God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now as I read this, I... I immediately know that there's a wrong way to apply this passage. And I know that because I have wrongly applied this passage. 
My sinful nature wants to take a passage like this and distort it and to do things like this. Okay, you wronged me. I'm not going to retaliate. God's going to get you. I don't need to strike back. I don't need to fight back because the Bible says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. So the wrong way to look at a passage like this is to delight in the wrath of God. The wrong way to read this is to delight in the fact that God promises to avenge the wrong against you. This is not something we should be delighting in. We should not be saying, well, nothing I can do, but boy, is God going to get them. God is going to get them good. I know what it's like to think like that. Or Am I the only one? Am I the only one who's, who's fallen into that wrong way of thinking? I shared with you, I think, in another context, on another topic, a few years ago, uh, Allie's car, my wife's car was stolen from our driveway. And I had one of those moments. Because I had no clue who stole my car. No way to fight back. No way to get revenge. No way to get my car back. And so I began, Lord, you get that thief. Oh, you get that thief. I can't get that thief, Lord. But you know who that thief is. And you can mess up their life. You go get that thief. But I caught myself. I caught myself. And I realized that's not what the Bible teaches about being a follower of Christ. And as unhappy as I was about what that thief had done, not immediately, but eventually... I began to pray regularly for that thief's salvation. Because if that thief comes to know Jesus Christ, they're going to stop stealing cars. They're going to start exercising grace and love. Pray for his or her salvation. So there are people who have crossed you. There are people who have offended you. And maybe you've been tempted to say, Lord, go get them. They will get justice, whether you pray for it or not. When the end of all things is nigh, justice will be had. God will make all things right. Heaven and earth will be one, and all wrongs will be righted. But until then, our obligation is to pray for those who have hurt us. To bless them. To pray for their salvation. Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, give them something to eat. If your enemy is thirsty, give them something to drink. And here we see again that the absence of retaliation is not enough. Showing restraint is not enough. Being self-controlled isn't going far enough. The Christian is to be marked by kindness and generosity toward those who have wronged them. I think some of you will recognize Romans 12 verse 21. My understanding is that this was a favorite verse of Martin Luther King. That this was a verse that he lived out. It's a verse that, that he championed, if you will. When being persecuted, Paul says, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's the way of the Christian. 
Now, some of you are thinking, he got to verse 21, that's it, right? He's done, we can go to lunch early. Not quite. Settle in for a few more minutes. Because if I don't frame all those exhortations rightly, then all I've done this morning is give you a lesson on moralism. I've given you a lesson that might fit even in a non-Christian context. But I want to frame all of these exhortations from the end of Romans 12 and the greater part of the New Testament to give you the impetus, to give you the reason why you must do these things. Why this is not a take it or leave it thing. If you don't know why Paul is calling you to these things, you won't be motivated to do them. I realize there might be some of you sitting here this morning and you're still not feeling inspired to forgive those who have offended you. There's some of you who are sitting there thinking, I've heard what the preacher said, but my bitterness runs deep. My hurt continues to linger and I'm not yet inspired to forgive such a person. So just in case you're still not eager to extend kindness towards those who have hurt you and dishonored you, here is why you must. This is what Christ did. And this is what Christ-likeness looks like. This is the way Christ behaved. And, it, and by extension, it's what Christ-likeness looks like. Jesus was the most righteous individual to ever walk the face of this earth. And he was wronged. He was wrongly convicted of blasphemy. He was sentenced to die a gruesome death on a cross. Jesus was wronged like no other. You'll remember immediately before he was crucified, they struck him. Stripped him of his clothes. They mocked him. They physically and verbally abused the most righteous, innocent man to ever walk the earth. And as he hung there on a cross, nailed through his hands and his feet, as he hung there on the cross, Jesus prayed. Do you remember that prayer? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He didn't pray that in the palace. He didn't pray that in prosperity. Jesus hung on a cross as a righteous man, as the God-man. And he prayed, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. So if we're not blessing our enemies, if we're not engaging our enemies the way Paul directs us in Romans 12, we're departing from being Christ-like. So when we read pursuing Christ-likeness and community transformation according to the Word of God, we talk about pursuing Christ-likeness. We're not just talking about being nice. We're not just talking about being kind. But we're talking in part about being kind to our enemies. Again, if we were to look earlier in Romans, particularly Romans chapter 5, there's an interesting verse which helps set 
the 12th chapter in context, Paul says, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. While we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You see, the basis of our being a Christian is God's initiating love and kindness towards us while we were his enemy. And I hope you've done the math on this. To receive God's pardon for your sins while withholding pardon from those who've sinned against you is the height of hypocrisy. It's the height of hypocrisy. If God has extended pardon to you, his enemy, we must not withhold pardon from others. You know how clearly God wants us to get that? When the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray, he made sure of all the things that got in the prayer too. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. It's the height of hypocrisy to harbor bitterness against others if God has pardoned us of our sin. I know that everyone in this room has been persecuted by someone in some way. And the bad news is that more is still to come. As you live out your years, more people will wrong you. More people will offend you. More people will persecute you. And so I want you to consider this morning, how will you respond? Maybe you haven't been charitable in the past. Maybe you've been a fight back kind of person. A stand up for yourself and defend yourself at all costs kind of person. We'll leave that alone. When you are challenged and offended tomorrow, next week, next month, how will you respond? Well, pray for self-control, of course. Pray that God would dissuade you from retaliation. And pray that God would prevent you from harboring bitterness against those who have wronged you. But let's remember to pray for those who have offended us. Let's pray that they would become committed followers of Jesus Christ. Pray that they would be influenced by the Spirit of Christ. And pray that you would have the ability to demonstrate Christ's love to them. Jesus points out in his Sermon on the Mount, it's easy to be nice to those who like you. It's easy to be generous and loving towards those who love you. He essentially says even atheists can do that. Even people who don't believe in God can be nice to those who are nice to them. Even the most ungodly person you can think of will be nice to those who are nice to them. Who can genuinely love their enemy? Who can genuinely love those who have offended them? The person who possesses the Spirit of Christ. 
That's who. The only way this is going to work is if the Spirit of Christ, which is within every believer, acts on our behalf. Because Bryn McPhail will always want to fight back, but the Spirit of Christ in Bryn McPhail will always want to bless those who persecute him. We need to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. It's the only way any of this works. And that's what makes us different. That's what makes this more than moralism. If I preach this in a Buddhist temple, it doesn't work. If I preach this in a mosque, if I preach this at a lodge gathering, none of this works. Because you need the Spirit of Christ. You need to be like Christ. To love your enemies and to be kind to them. You have an obligation to love every person. And what's delightful about this is God gives you what is required. What is required is supplied. The Holy Spirit will help you do what will otherwise be possible. Verse 21 is something you're capable of. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Overcome evil in your life by demonstrating the love of Christ. He will supply the power. Amen.